book one chapters forty six through forty nine of against jovinianius by saint jerome this librivox recording is in the public domain i may pass on to roman women and the first that i shall mention is lucretia who would not survive her violated chastity but blotted out the stain upon her person with her own blood duilius the first roman who won a naval triumph took to wife a virgin bilia of such extraordinary chastity that she was an example even to an age which held unchastity to be not merely vicious but monstrous when he was grown old and feeble he was once in the course of a quarrel taunted with having bad breath in dudgeon he betook himself home and on complaining to his wife that she had never told him of it so that he might remedy the fault he received the reply that she would have done so but that she thought that all men had foul breath as he had in either case this chaste and noble woman deserves praise whether she was not aware there was anything wrong with her husband or if she patiently endured and her husband discovered this unfortunate condition not by the disgust of his wife but by the abuse of an enemy at all events the woman who marries a second time cannot say this marcia cato's younger daughter on being asked after the loss of her husband why she did not marry again replied that she could not find a man who wanted her more than her money her words teach us that men in choosing their wives look for riches rather than for chastity and that many in marrying use not their eyes but their fingers that must be an excellent thing which is won by avarice when the same lady was mourning the loss of her husband and the matrons asked what day would terminate her grief she replied the same that terminates my life i imagine that a woman who thus followed her husband in heart and mind had no thought of marrying again portia whom brutus took to wife was a virgin cato's wife marcia was not a virgin but marcia went to and fro between hortensius and cato and was quite content to live without cato while portia could not live without brutus for women attach themselves closely to particular men and to keep to, to one is a strong link in the chain of affection when a relative urged ania to marry again she was of full age and a goodly person she answered i shall certainly not do so for if i find a good man i have no wish to be in fear of losing him if a bad one why must i put up with a bad husband after having had a good one portia the younger on hearing a certain lady of good character who had a second husband praised in her house replied a chaste and happy matron never marries more than once marcella the elder on being asked by her mother if she was glad she was married answered so much so that i want nothing more valeria the sister of the messalis when she lost her husband servius would marry no one else on being asked why not she said that to her her husband servius was ever alive i feel that in giving this list of women i have said far more than is customary in illustrating the point and that i might be justly censured by my learned reader but what am i to do when the women of our time press me with apostolic authority 
and before the first husband is buried, repeat from morning to night the precepts which allow a second marriage. Seeing they despise the fidelity which Christian purity dictates, let them at least learn chastity from the heathen. A book on marriage, worth its weight in gold, passes under the name of Theophrastus. In it, the author asks whether a wise man marries, and after laying down the conditions, that the wife must be fair, of good character, and honest parentage, the husband in good health and of ample means, and after saying that under these circumstances a wise man sometimes enters the state of matrimony, he immediately proceeds thus. But all these conditions are seldom satisfied in marriage. A wise man, therefore, must not take a wife, for in the first place his study of philosophy will be hindered, and it is impossible for anyone to attend to his books and his wife. Matrons wants many things, costly dresses, gold, jewels, great outlay, maidservants, all kinds of furniture, litters, and gilded couches. Then come curtain lectures and the live long night. She complains that one lady goes out better dressed than she, that another is looked up by all. I am a poor despised nobody at the ladies' assemblies. Why did you ogle that creature next door? Why were you talking to the maid? What did you bring from the market? I am not allowed to have a single friend or companion. She suspects that her husband's love goes the same way as her hate. There may be in some neighboring city the wisest of teachers, but if we have a wife, we can neither leave her behind nor take the burden with us. To support a poor wife is hard. To put up with a rich one is torture. Notice, too, that in the case of a wife, you cannot pick and choose. You must take her as you find her. If she has a bad temper or is a fool, if she has a blemish or is proud or has bad breath, whatever her fault may be, all this we learn after marriage. Horses, asses, cattle, even slaves of the smallest worth, clothes, kettles, wooden seats, cups, and earthenware pitchers are first tried and then bought. A woman is the only thing that is not shown before she is married, for fear she may not give satisfaction. Our gaze must always be directed to her face, and we must always praise her beauty. If you look at another woman, she thinks that she is out of favor. She must be called my lady. Her birthday must be kept. We must swear by her health and wish that she may survive us. Respect must be paid to the nurse, to the nursemaid, to the father's slave, to the foster child, to the handsome hanger-on, to the curled darling who manages her affairs, and to the eunuch who ministers to the safe indulgence of her lust, names which are only a cloak for adultery. Upon whomsoever she sets her heart, they must have her love, though they want her not. If you give her the management of the whole house, you must yourself be her slave. If you reserve something for yourself, she will not think you are loyal to her, but she will turn to strife and hatred. And unless you quickly take care, she will have the poison ready. If you introduce old women and soothsayers and prophets and vendors of jewels and silken clothing, you imperil her chastity. If you shut the door upon them, she is injured and fancies you suspect her. But what is the good of even a careful guardian when an unchaste wife cannot be watched? and a chaste one ought not to be. For necessity is but a faithless keeper of chastity, 
and she alone really deserves to be called pure, who is free to sin if she chooses. If a woman be fair, she soon finds lovers. If she be ugly, it is easy to be wanton. It is difficult to guard what many long for. It is annoying to have what no one thinks worth possessing. But the misery of having an ugly wife is less than that of watching a comely one. Nothing is safe for which a whole person sighs and longs. One man entices with his figure, another with his brains, another with his wits, another with his open hand. Somehow or sometime the fortress is captured, which is attacked on all sides. Men marry, indeed, so as to get a manager for the house, to solace weariness, to banish solitude. But a faithful slave is a far better manager, more submissive to the master, more observant of his ways, than a wife who thinks she proves herself mistress if she acts in opposition to her husband. That is, if she does what pleases her, not what she is commanded. But friends and servants who are under the obligation of benefits received are better able to wait upon us in sickness than a wife who makes us responsible for her tears. She will sell you enough to make a deluge for the hope of a legacy, boasts of her anxiety, but drives her sick husband to the distraction of despair. But if she herself is poorly, we must fall sick with her and never leave her bedside. Or if she be a good and agreeable wife, how rare a bird she is, we have to share her groans in childbirth and suffer torture when she is in danger. A wise man can never be alone. He has with him the good men of all time, and turns his mind freely wherever he chooses. What is inaccessible to him in person, he can embrace in thought. And if men are scarce, he converses with God. He is never less alone than when alone. Then again, to marry for the sake of children, so that our name may not perish, or that we may have support in old age, and leave our property without dispute, is the height of stupidity. For what is it to us when we are leaving the world if another bears our name, when even a son does not all at once take his father's title, and there are countless others who are called by the same name? Or what support in old age is he whom you bring up and who may die before you, or turn out a retrobate? Or, at all events, when he reaches mature age, you may seem to him long in dying. Friends and relatives whom you can judiciously love are better and safer heirs than those whom you must make your heirs whether you like it or not. Indeed, the surest way of having a good heir is to ruin your fortune in a good cause while you live, not to leave the fruit of your labor to be used you know not how. When Theophratius thus discourses, are there any of us Christians whose conversation is in heaven and who daily say, I long to be dissolved and to be with Christ, whom he does not put to the blush? Shall a joint heir of Christ really long for human heirs? And shall he desire children and delight himself in a long line of descendants who will perhaps fall into the clutches of Antichrist? When we read that Moses and Samuel preferred other men to their own sons and did not count as their children those whom they saw to be displeasing to God. When Cicero, after divorcing Terenia, was requested by 
Hertius to marry his sister, he set the matter altogether on one side, and said that he could not possibly devote himself to a wife and to philosophy. Meanwhile, that excellent partner, who had herself drunk wisdom at Tully's fountains, married Sallust, his enemy, and took her third husband, Messala Corvinius, and thus, as it were, passed through three degrees of eloquence. Socrates had two wives, Santippe and Neron, granddaughter of Aristides. They frequently quarreled, and he was accustomed to banter them for disagreeing about him. He being the ugliest of men, with stub nose, bald forehead, rough-haired, and bandy-legged, at last they planned an attack upon him, and having punished him severely and put him to flight, vexed him for a long time. On one occasion, when he opposed Santippe, who from above was heaping abuse upon him, the termagat soused him with dirty water, and he only wiped his head and said, I knew that a shower must follow such thunder as that. Itella, consort of El Sula, the fortunate, except in the matter of his wife, was openly unchaste, and it was the common talk of Athens, as I learnt in my youthful years, when we soon pick up what is bad. And yet Sula was in the dark, and first got to know the secrets of his household through the abuse of his enemies. Colonel Pompey had an impure wife, Musha, who was surrounded by eunuchs from Pontus and troops of the countrymen of Mithridates. Others thought that he knew all and submitted to it. But a comrade told him during the campaign, and the conqueror of the whole world was dismayed at the sad intelligence. Major Cato, the censor, had a wife, Actoria Paula, a woman of low origin, fond of drink, violent, and, who would believe it, haughty to Cato. I say this for fear anyone may suppose that in marrying a poor woman he has secured peace. When Philip, king of Macedon, against whom Demosthenes thundered in his Philippics, was entering his bedroom as usual, his wife in a passion shut him out. Finding himself excluded, he held his tongue and consoled himself for the insult by reading a tragic poem. Gorgias, the rhetician, recited his excellent treatise on Concord to the Greeks, then at variance among themselves, at Olympia, whereupon Melantheus, his enemy, observed, Here is a man who teaches us Concord, and yet could not make Concord between himself and his wife and maidservants, three persons in one house. The truth was that his wife envied the beauty of the girl, and drove the purest of men wild with daily quarrels. Old tragedies of Euripides are censures on women. Hence Hermonian says, The counsels of evil women have beguiled me. In the semi-barbarous and remote city, Leptis, it is the custom for a daughter-in-law on the second day to beg the loan of a jar from her mother-in-law. The latter at once denies the request, and we see how true is the remark of Terence, ambiguously expressed on purpose. 
How is this? Do all mothers-in-law hate their daughters-in-law? We read of a certain Roman noble who, when his friends found fault with him for having divorced a wife, beautiful and chaste and rich, put out his foot and said to them, And the shoe before you looks new and elegant, yet no one but myself knows where it pinches. Herodotus tells us that a woman puts off her modesty with her clothes. And our own comic poets thinks the man fortunate who has never been married. Why should I refer to Pasiphae, Clytemnestra, and Eraphile, the first of whom, the wife of a king and swimming in pleasure, is said to have lusted for a bull, the second to have killed her husband for the sake of an adulterer, the third to have betrayed Amphirus, and to have preferred a gold necklace to the welfare of her husband. In all the bombast of tragedy and overthrow of houses, cities, and kingdoms, it is the wives and concubines who stir up strife. Parents take up arms against their children. Unspeakable banquets are served. And on account of the rape of one wretched woman, Europe and Asia are involved in a ten years' war. We read of some who were divorced the day after they were married and immediately married again. Both husbands are to blame both he who is soon dissatisfied and he who was soon so pleased. Epicurus, the patron of pleasure, though Metrodorus, his disciple, married Leontia, says that a wise man can seldom marry because marriage has many drawbacks. And as riches, honors, bodily health, and other things which we call indifferent are neither good nor bad, but stand as it were midway, and become good and bad according to the use and issue, so wives stand on the borderline of good and ill. It is moreover a serious matter for a wise man to be in doubt whether he is going to marry a good or a bad woman. Chrysippus ridiculously maintains that a wise man should marry, that he may not outrage Jupiter, Gamelius and Genethlius, for upon that principle the Latins would not marry at all, since they have no Jupiter who presides over marriage. But if, as he thinks, the life of men is determined by the names of gods, whoever chooses to sit will offend Jupiter Stator, Aristotle and Plutriarch, and Arsenica have written treaties on matrimony, out of which we have already made some extracts, and now add a few more. The love of beauty is the forgetting of reason and the near neighbor of madness, a foul blot, little in keeping with a sound mind. It confuses counsel, breaks high and generous spirits, draws away men from great thoughts to mean ones. It makes men quarrelous, ill-tempered, foolhardy, cruelly imperious, servile flatterers, good for nothing, at last not even for love itself. For although in the intensity of passion it burns like a raging fire, it wastes much time through suspicions, tears, and complaints. It begets hatred of itself, and at last hates itself. The course of love is laid bare in Plato's Phadrius from beginning to end, and Lysias explains all its drawbacks, how it is led not by reason but by frenzy and in particular is a harsh goaler over lovely wives. Seneca, too, relates that he knew an accomplished man 
who before going out used to tie his wife's garter upon his breast and could not bear to be absent from her for a quarter of an hour and this pair would never take a drink unless husband and wife alternatively put their lips to the cup and they did other things just as absurd in the extravagant outbursts of their warm but blind affection their love was of an honorable birth but it grew out of all proportion and it makes no difference how honorable may have been the cause of the man's insanity and Zistus, in his sentences tells us that he who too ardently loves his own wife is an adulterer it is disgraceful to love another man's wife at all or one's own too much a wise man ought to love his wife with judgment not with passion let a man govern his voluptuous impulses and not rush headlong into intercourse there is nothing blacker than to love a wife as if she were an adulteress men who say they have contracted marriage and are bringing up children for the good of their country and of their race should at least imitate the brutes and not destroy their offspring in the womb nor should they appear in the character of lovers but of husbands in some cases marriage has grown out of adultery and shameful to relate men have tried to teach their wives chastity after having taken their chastity away marriages of that sort are quickly dissolved when lust is satiated the first allurement gone the charm is lost what shall i say says seneca of the poor men who in numbers are bribed to take the name of husband in order to evade the laws promulgated against bachelors how can he who is married under such conditions be a guide to morality teach chastity and maintain the authority of a husband it is the saying of a very learned man that chastity must be preserved in all costs and that when it is lost all virtue falls to the ground this holds the primacy of all virtues in woman this it is that makes up for a wife's poverty enhances her riches redeems her deformity gives grace to her beauty it makes her act in a way worthy of her forefathers whose blood it does not taint with bastard offspring of her children who through it have no need to blush for their mother or to be in doubt about their father and above all of herself since it defends her from external volition no greater calamity connected with captivity than to be the victim of another's lust the councilship sheds luster upon men eloquence gives eternal renown military glory and a triumph immortalize an obscure family many are the spheres ennobled by splendid ability the virtue of women is in a special sense purity it was this that made lucrea the equal of brutus if it did not make her the, his superior since brutus learned from a woman the impossibility of being a slave it was this that made cornelia a fit match for gratius and portia for a second brutus tenanquil is better known than her husband his name like the names of many other kings is lost in the midst of antiquity she through a virtue rare among women is too deep-rooted in the hearts of the all ages for her memory ever to perish let my married sisters copy the examples of Lieno, Cleobulin, Gorgenti, Timoclea, the Claudius and Cornelius, 
and when they find the apostle conceding second marriage to depraved women, they will read that before the light of our religion shone upon the world, wives of one husband ever held high rank among matrons, and that by their hands the sacred rites of Fortuna Malibras were performed, that a priest or Flamen twice married was unknown, and that the high priests of Athens to this day emasculate themselves by drinking hemlock, and once they have been drawn in to the pontificate, cease to be men. End of chapters 46 through 49. End of book one.